Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're on to the second half of our two-part series on Japanese archaeology and anthropology, sponsored by our friend Elizabeth. Thanks again, Elizabeth. Yay! And today, we're focusing on the traditions, culture, and even the archaeology of Japanese food. We haven't done a food-based episode in a while, and there's such a huge wealth of tradition associated with Japanese food and drink, and I am very excited and hungry. Yeah, and rare turn of events, I'm not very hungry right now, but I am hungry for knowledge. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Uh, But uh, first up, It's maybe one of the most important components of any Japanese meal, which is the rice. Yay. Mm. For a long time, the earliest evidence of rice farming was dated to around 300 BCE, which fit nicely into models that it was introduced by Koreans, forced to migrate by upheaval in China in the Warring States period, which was between 403 and 221 BCE. Then in the early 2000s CE, Uh, Grains of wetland rice were found in pottery from northern Kyushu, dating to 1000 BC. I almost said 100,000 BC. Nope. (laughs) It's your turn to just severely underestimate. (laughs) 1000 BC. 1000 BCE. This caused some archaeologists to speculate that maybe wetland rice farming was introduced directly from China. The picture of the origins of rice agriculture in Japan is now a bit clearer. Rice was first cultivated during the Heian period, um, 784 to 1185 CE, as the society shifted from hunter-gatherer to agricultural. Rice is perfectly suited to being grown in small areas, including on hills and terraces, and became the main grain traditionally eaten three times a day at the minimum. Um, Japanese cuisine generally uses polished, short grain white rice, meaning it's has very good elocution. Mm, mm-hmm. It's been to debutante school. Yes. <laughs> the rain in Spain. It's very sticky. Yeah. Yep. It's The rice is very sticky, not the rain in Spain. <laughs> rain in Spain is probably pretty wet. There are many different strains of rice with subtleties and flavor. In addition to being eaten as part of sushi or by itself, rice is also made into noodles, crackers, cakes, sweets, and sake. From an online article by Linda Woitan, published by the Stanford Program on International and Cross-Cultural Education, which I think the acronym is pronounced speechy. <laughs> yeah, the, the cross-cultural they keep as one word, so it, it works out to spice. Okay. But it should be a speechy. <laughs> Um, according to Speechy, uh, oh, the language of 
<laughs> the language of a culture provides clues to important concepts and values. This is true in the Japanese culture. The primacy of rice as a diet staple is echoed in the Japanese language. Gohan, which is the, both the word for cooked rice as well as meal. This is also true in other Asian cultures where rice is the main dietary staple. The use of gohan in Japanese is extended with prefixes to give us asa gohan, breakfast, hiru gohan, lunch, and ban gohan, dinner. These multiple terms signal that it was almost impossible for most Japanese to think of a meal without thinking about rice. Hmm. Another linguistic link is the early indigenous name of Japan, Mizu Honokuni, um, the land of the water stock plant or rice. Yep. Riceland. Oh, Riceland. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, my, they... that's my edgy HBO investigative <laughs> news show. Set in Japan? Riceland. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you pitch that. Okay. <laughs> Early identification then encompassed the concept of rice growing. Interestingly, one name the Japanese have used to identify the United States is Baikoku, land of rice, thereby implying abundance. Again, rice, rice land. land. <laughs> Historically, rice has many links to various, as various other non-food aspects of Japanese culture. For example, the emperor became a priest king early in Japanese history. Many of his priestly functions under the Shinto religion revolved around rice growing and included rice products such as sake, rice wine, and mochi, rice cakes, as well as the actual grain and its stalks. Indeed, the previous emperor Hirohito, right up to the time when he became seriously ill, tended a rice plot, as had previous emperors, on the imperial grounds in Tokyo. A little gardening. A little, little gardening. Um, yeah. And now, because it's more interesting than we thought it would be, Rice facts. Actually, rice facts. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Anna, more, you mean more interesting than we thought it would be? I knew that rice was very interesting because once I went on a weird date to the <laughs> um, the sake brewery there in Berkeley, California. Oh, oh, I don't know. And oh, you can, sak sakura. Yeah. yeah, and so you can yeah. go. It means and cherry blossom. They have a little. Yeah, they have a little um, museum. You are subjected to a lengthy documentary film about rice oh, okay. and its merits. So, okay. And then they do like flights and tastings. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. It, it does sound like a weird date, though, <laughs> like being subjected, as you said, to a documentary <laughs> with someone you don't know very well. <laughs> it was also so a bit of a double date. Which, <laughs> how'd it go? <laughs> tell, tell me some rice facts. <laughs> okay. Rice is a member of a family of plants that also includes marijuana, your standard lawn grass, and bamboo. There are over 120,000 different varieties of rice, including black rice, red rice, white rice, mm -hmm. lots of white rices. Yeah. yeah. Other colors like forbidden. <laughs> Not a color, but it is a kind of rice. And I really like Thanks forbidden for the rice. <laughs> you know, is is that an aspect of your your um, gritty series, Riceland? Forbidden rice. Yeah. Okay. Rice plants can grow to a height of ten feet and shoot up as much as eight inches in a single day. It's really it's fast. It's fast. 
a bamboo, I know you can practically hear it growing if you're if you're quiet enough. <laughs> or is that just a Zen koan? I don't know. No, I mean, right in you, if you've ever heard bamboo growing. No, because there's because there's that um, semi legend, semi maybe true thing that uh, prisoners in Japan were sometimes tortured by being strapped down above bamboo plants, and the bamboo plants were allowed to grow up into them. They tested it on MythBusters once, using like uh, you know a ballistics gel. Last fact: the seeds in rice are contained in branching heads called panicles. Panicles at the disco-cles. <laughs> Who knew that panic at the disco would be such a, like, <laughs> like relevant, like, bountiful orchard for our <laughs> jokes? <laughs> Rice seeds, or grains, are 80% starch. So starchy. The remainder is mostly water and small amounts of phosphorus, potassium, calcium, and B vitamins. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to... You can have your rice and drink it, too, as sake. Sake is a traditional Japanese alcohol made from fermented rice. It is sort of neither rice or neither rice wine nor rice beer, as we have oh, discussed previously. I learned it. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Known as Nihonshu, literally Japanese liquor in Japan, it is the country's national beverage and is commonly served during formal ceremonies, special events, and national holidays. It's typically poured from a tall bottle called a tokuri and drunk from a sakazuki, a small porcelain cup. I love sake cups. They feel so nice in your hand. Makes me feel like a giant. The exact origin <laughs> of sake is unclear because it predates recorded history, but the earliest known production of rice-based alcohol took place in China roughly around 500 BCE from the site of Jiahu, which we talked about in one of our early Dirt After Dark episodes. Was it yeah. that? We've mentioned it a couple times, I think. Yeah. Um, we spoke about it extensively there. Um, we but mentioned it maybe in our wine and cheese episode. Yeah, yeah, because it's kind of wine, kind, kind of, of beer. Yeah. And so we or talk about the, it in both. Yeah, split the difference. Uh, the process of making this very early rice-based alcohol involved villagers gathering to chew rice and nuts, spitting the contents into a communal tub, which would then be stored and left to ferment. The enzymes in saliva aided the fermentation process. So it's very much like chicha in yeah. Mexico, but, but that's corn-based. Um, perhaps for the best, sanitation-wise, this method was soon abandoned after the discovery of koji, a non-spit-derived mold enzyme that could be added to rice to begin fermentation. This brewing technique is believed to have spread throughout Japan in the Nara period, which was 710 to 794 CE, resulting in sake as we know it today. Um, can I ask a question? Yeah. It's specifically about fermentation. I may or may not know the answer. Okay. This this was glossed over in that lengthy documentary. Okay. Um, like what what about like the enzymes in human saliva causing things Help. to ferment? Like Okay, so um fermentation is primarily yeast strains digesting sugars and creating as a byproduct alcohol and so um so our saliva has enzymes that that's why like if you like the little thing that you do in elementary school where you like keep a if you hold a saltine on your tongue yeah yeah yeah. and it starts to taste sweet is it that that is what allows it to Human saliva contains an enzyme called amylase, which helps to digest starch. So when you expose starch to human spit, it starts breaking down those starches into sugars, which the yeast can then get at. Uh, so, and this is like, it would be like wild yeast. 
So yeah, it's like yeah, just you, yeast so, that's okay, out so and about. You're you're making like a sake starter. You're making, you're making yeast food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're like making a. So you're when using you do your like spit your, to unlock those those. So basically, you're taking the starches and semi transforming them into sugars, which previously weren't accessible to the yeasts. Follow up question. Yep. Where are the yeasts? They just kind of float through the air. What? They're everywhere. Yeah. So like if you go to an apple orchard or you like pick wild fruit, you notice that the surface is kind of cloudy, right? You ever like picked an apple at an orchard? That's wild yeast. So like if you wanted to, you could use that to make a sourdough starter, which I have. Wild yeast is just sort of airborne. It's like spores, you know? You're probably, yes, you're probably encountering yeast right now. I see you looking around your apartment. (laughs) You got some yeasty beasties. You have been living every moment of your life up till now around the same yeasts. Nothing is different except that you have the knowledge of it now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I took the red pill. The red <laughs> yeast pill. Sake continues to be a deeply important part of Japanese culture. In fact, while researching this episode, I found some really cool archaeological studies that exemplify the Japanese perspective on sake. One was a master's thesis by Christian Driver of the University of Denver titled Brewing Behind Barbed Wire, an Archaeology of Sake at Amache. So here's an excerpt from the abstract of the paper, and it's on digital comments, so it's available to read, and we'll link to the whole thing in our show notes. Quote, After the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry living on the west coast of the United States were forcibly removed from their home communities. These people were designated as evacuees by the U.S. government. Yeah, what a euphemism and were incarcerated within a network of federal government facilities, the largest of which were internment centers operated by the War Relocation Authority that held mostly U.S. citizens. The Granada Relocation Center, Amache, was the smallest of these internment centers. The presence of sake at Amache indicates that Japanese Americans continued important practices of daily life despite restrictions under confinement. The other source I found was an article on Gastro Obscura, which is the food-centric part of Atlas Obscura, the source that we use a whole lot, and it's called The Japanese Ghost Town Buried Deep in a Canadian Forest. It's a real atmospheric title. So, quoting from that article. At first, it didn't look like much. A clearing about an hour's walk into the dense forest of British Columbia's Seymour Valley, with some rusted cans scattered along scattered among the dank leaves and moldy tree trunks. It was 2004, and Bob Muckle, an archaeologist and anthropology instructor at Capilano University, was looking for a site to teach his students excavation. But when the team started digging, they uncovered something unexpected. Delicate, intact, blue and white china rice bowls, whose undersides were stamped, made in Japan. Excavations quickly unearthed more objects, sake bottles, ceramics, suggesting the camp had been occupied not by transient loggers, but by a community of about 50 to 60 Japanese Canadians, including women and children, over a period of 20 years. The people who lived here were likely employees of Ekichi Kagetsu, a prominent Japanese-Canadian logger. While the team has yet to uncover definitive proof of how long the village was inhabited, Muckle theorizes residents stayed from around 1920 to 1942, far after logging work dried up and other camps closed shop in the mid-1920s. In 1942, the camp was broken up due to the U.S.'s internment policies for those of Japanese ancestry. The logging camp was in Canada, but Canada was a U.S. ally and Japanese Canadians were not treated much better than Japanese Americans. Muckle's team has been excavating ever since the site was first surveyed. 
The artifacts they uncovered reveal a community that maintained their cultural and culinary traditions even in the middle of the woods. The team found delicate soup and rice bowls, likely bought in Vancouver's Japanese neighborhoods after a laborious trek, which indicated that inhabitants still ate traditionally, probably with chopsticks. They uncovered a square of nitrogen-rich garden soil, fertilized with bone meal, which at one time may have been lush with Japanese vegetables such as daikon and fuki. Even rarer, the team found the remnants of a traditional Japanese-style bathhouse and shrine, suggesting an attempt at recreating traditional village life unparalleled in North America. In the years since they discovered the site, Muckle and his team have uncovered hundreds of objects, each holding stories of a lost way of life, a key to a home that has disappeared, a stopwatch that ceased telling time years ago, milk bottles for babies that have long since grown. Stacked in the shadows of monumental lichen-dusted trees, the blue and white rice bowls look ghostly, minute, and delicate. Their presence is a poignant reminder of the communities broken up by racist government policies. So that's just a portion of the article. Uh, the rest will be up in the show notes. And now let's take a quick break for some ads. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. We're back. <laughs> hey, you know two things I love? Art and food. And mm -hmm. the Japanese tradition of bento combines both of these things. So the history of bento is far deeper than Pokemon cafes and people conspiring one another. <laughs> It says pinspiration. I know. <laughs> the Japanese lunch container evolved from utility to status symbol to Instagram fodder over the past 15 centuries. In fact, during times of economic uncertainty, owning a bento box was downright controversial. In the 5th century, CE, CE, Japan's farmers, hunters, and warriors packed their lunches in sacks or boxes and brought them to the fields. The design is derived from a farmer's seed box, and it usually features multiple compartments for different dishes, such as rice, vegetables, and fish. From there, bento spread across other countries, like China, Korea, the Philippines, and more. The word bento was actually derived from the Southern Song Dynasty slang term, biandang, which means convenient. Although that is contested, but that's the most common explanation I found. Oh, okay. Each culture adopted its own dishes for the box, but the idea of a varied, balanced lunch remained constant. Bento became a favorite for cultural gatherings and social events, such as festivals, theater, and religious holidays. Boxes, <laughs> boxes themselves could be made of lacquered wood or basket material. When the aluminum bento became popular during Japan's Taisho period, beginning in 1912, bento suddenly went from lunch to luxury. <laughs> After World War I, Japan grappled with economic inequality. While its newfound hegemony in Asia grew Japan's industry, farmers and more traditional laborers continued with unstable crops. The wealth gap trickled down to Japan's children. Wealthy parents sent their kids to school with shiny bento lunches, neatly packed with nutritious fare, but poor families could no longer afford the once simple bento. 
Bento's popularity resurged in the 1980s, along with TV dinners and other convenience dishes. By this time, the U.S. and other Western nations had already been introduced to Bento's charm. Um, yeah, because the 80s is like when yeah. mainstream U.S. like discovered like Japan, Japanese yeah. food. And like, yeah. And they were yeah. like, oh, wow. And like, oh, sushi? <laughs> Japanese-American sugar plantation workers were the first to bring the bento lunch to the U.S. In the 1990s, character bentos were born and are still incredibly popular today with fantastic edible creations that are as delightful to Instagram as they are delicious to eat. Presumably. I've only seen them on Instagram. Besides Pinterest, parenting magazines, and back-to-school blogs... um, all over the world, have featured bento recipes, ideas for shaping rice balls into baby pandas for kids' lunches. Um, I mean, just to be honest, I'd eat, a, I'd eat a rice panda. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. A scroll down to the bento subreddit on Reddit reveals just how many cultures have taken to creative bento preparation. Little Miss Bento, nay Shirley Wong, is a Singapore-based artist whose formal sushi instruction now informs Little Mermaid rice balls and Pikachu egg sheets. In fact, the bento box has merged with a core element of some Japanese art, which prizes not just a work's outcome, but the process itself, which should be intentional and precise, a craft honed over years of study. The philosophy manifests in everything from calligraphy to amami to plastic food. Which is its whole, that's a whole other huge category of, it's so cool. The one, so I I sort of fell down a slight hole while I was like, oh, what about plastic food? Oh my God. But the (laughs) thing that I did find that was really interesting was the very first food models. So what it's talking about is like, if you go to a Japanese shop that sells food, instead of like a printed menu showing photos of the food, you'll often have like a layout of these little tiny plastic models of what the restaurant serves. So originally... Originally, these were made from wax, and the guy who first did the food models was, uh, like, he previously had made models for uh, medical students. So it was like, here's an example of lesions due to syphilis in wax. (laughs) And then someone was like, hey, can you do that but for food? And he was like, I guess. (laughs) It's like, oh, no, my udon has syphilis. No. (laughs) Very different (laughs) practices. He's like, oh, my notes, they got scrambled. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) let's let's walk that back. Uh, Speaking of art and philosophy, let's spill some tea. Or rather, let's very carefully not spill the tea and talk about the traditional Japanese tea ceremony. And this is from excerpted from uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, specifically um, text relating to some of their collections of traditional Japanese tea vessels, etc. Quote, although the Japanese word for the tea ceremony, chanoyu, literally means hot water for tea, the practice involves much more than its name implies. Chanoyu is a ritualized secular practice in which tea is consumed in a specialized space with codified procedures. The act of preparing and drinking matcha, the powdered green tea used in the ceremony, is a choreographed art requiring many years of study to master. The intimate setting of the tea room, which is usually only large enough to accommodate four or five people, is modeled on a hermit's hut. In this space, often surrounded by a garden, the participants temporarily withdraw from the mundane world. Ugh, 
Sounds nice. Sounds like my apartment. (laughs) In the tea room, the emphasis is on the interaction between the hosts, guests, and tea utensils. The host will choose an assemblage of objects specific to that gathering and use those utensils to perform the tea preparations in front of the guests. Each tea gathering is a unique experience, so a particular assemblage of objects and people is never repeated. The guests are expected to abide by tea room etiquette with regard to the gestures used to drink the tea and the appreciation of the utensils. When presented with a bowl of tea, a guest will notice and reflect upon the warmth of the bowl and the color of the bright green matcha against the clay before taking the first sip. Someone that I know, um, a former partner of theirs, was trained, was learning how mm-hmm. to perform the tea ceremony. To and do so in a museum or just to no, learn it? To like to like to because um, she is like one of her parents is Japanese. Ah, and okay. so she was, she's doing this to sort of like engage with like that side of her, of her family and like of her, her heritage. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's apparently like rather intense and there's like an essay I portion. Imagine. Like, oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. So that I think she, um, wh- wherever she was and through whatever she was learning this, I think there, it was sort of the culmination of like Japanese language instruction and like all of these things. And then being at the end of it, she will be able to perform the tea ceremony. Yeah. Like correctly so yeah that's that's lovely uh you said there was a written portion would you say that was like taking the the SATs? absolutely <laughs> thank you thank you absolutely. i thought of that like 30 seconds ago and it was I wish I really trying hard very oh. i was trying so hard to listen to you but also i was so excited i, I could see you like <laughs> i was like this is an interesting story <laughs> i'm yeah, sorry i really was listening the sats okay speaking of tea Again, From, <laughs> we're back to tea. We're back to the tea. From theculturetrip.com. The tea plant was brought to Japan in the 9th century CE by a Buddhist monk by the name of Eichu on his return from China, where tea had been in widespread use for centuries. Eichu served the drink to an emperor not long after, and an imperial decree was issued to start cultivating tea plantations in Japan. It would take another three centuries before tea ceremonies would become a spiritual practice. Initially, tencha, a type of matcha tea, was consumed at religious rituals in Buddhist monasteries. But by the end of the 13th century, tea had become a status symbol and samurai were participating in luxurious tea tasting parties where prizes were given out for guessing the correct variety of tea. The drink was seen as a decadent luxury, synonymous with Japanese nobility, and tensions started to emerge between opulence and minimalism in tea culture. These tensions would come to a bloody climax more than 200 years later. A seismic shift in Japanese tea culture began around the Muromachi period when tea drinking reverted to a spiritual practice. Central to this was the concept of wabi-sabi, the belief that accepting transience and imperfection is the first step toward enlightenment. In the 15th century, the two most important figures in the history of Japan's tea culture emerged, Murata Juko and Senorikyu. Juko was a Buddhist widely recognized as the father of the Japanese tea ceremony. He introduced the four core values of the ceremony, kin, or reverence, ke, respect for food and drink, se, purity in body and spirit, and ji, calmness and freedom from desire. It was an argument on how to make tea, which not only resulted in at least two grisly deaths, but also firmly established Rikyu's legacy. 
Rikyu was close with the samurai regent uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, but Hideyoshi had his own ideas on tea ceremonies, which were at complete odds with Rikyu's minimalist, dignified approach. For the regent, tea had become political and cultural currency, a means to demonstrate power and influence, as well as win over noblemen and warriors. Rikyu, however, was less concerned with tea ceremonies as a form of political grandstanding and doggedly pursued his notions of humility and spiritual purity. Gradually, their friendship became fraught as Hideyoshi started seeing the monk as a political obstacle. Things took a dramatic turn when, in 1590, Hideyoshi ordered one of Rikyu's disciples to be executed. Then, a year later, the regent ordered his former tea master to end his own life, which he did. Rikyu's violent end gave way to three schools, which pledged to continue his tradition, guiding it away from the samurai and ruling class and towards the townspeople of Japan. So who knew? Wow. There was a tea feud. Not me. Let's have another quick break for some ads. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our tea public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping. And we're back. To serving you another delicious steaming bowl of knowledge, in mm. this case, about the invention of instant ramen. Did you know, for example, that there is a World Instant Noodles Association? I mean, yeah, I did. I wrote oh. the script. Okay. Well, you do now. You can find them at instantnoodles.org, as Anna did while <laughs> researching this topic. Instant noodles are typically sold in a dried and pre-cooked noodle block with a flavoring powder and or seasoning oil. That seasoning oil, tricky stuff. stuff. 
Oh, yeah, it can squirt out at no, you. It can burn my delicate little baby tongue. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it so depends spicy. if you get it's spicy. Spicy. Uh, the flavoring mm. is usually in a separate packet, although in the case of cup noodles, the flavoring is sprinkled on top of the noodles in the cup. So Some it's like ins- loose. It's not in a packet. Okay. Just, just pet it. Yeah. Some instant noodle products are seal packed. <laughs> just a factory full of little seal stuffing noodles into cups. <laughs> How are they doing it with just, their little flippers? <laughs> uh, um, so <laughs> these can be reheated or eaten straight from the packet. Dried noodle blocks are. I mean, then again, you can eat. You can, yeah, you just it. You, you can. I have. I have. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's pretty good. <laughs> Dry noodle blocks are designed to be cooked or soaked in boiling water before eating, but but can be consumed dry. The main ingredients in dried noodles are usually wheat flour, palm oil, and salt. Common ingredients in the flavoring powder are salt, monosodium glutamate, seasoning. Mm. And sugar. Seasoning. Seasoning. Do you know much about the um, domestication of seasoning? (laughs) No? Was that a a real question? Or do you mean like the the use of herbs and spices? (laughs) No, no, just, they just listed it like it's a thing. Like it's. Well, because like it's probably different thing. for every MSG for is every a thing. brand. Sugar's a thing. Seasoning. Okay, um, what they could have said spices. Spice. The dried noodle block was originally created by flash frying cooked noodles. Flash frying. So they were noodles. boiled and then yeah. Um, and this is still the main method used in Asian countries, but air dried noodle blocks are favored in Western countries. The instant ramen that we know today or rather the method for making it, was invented by a Taiwanese man named Momofuku Ando, though his given name at birth was Wu Baifu. After World War II, he immigrated to Japan and took his new name. There, he pursued a medley of jobs, including sock sales and making salt. Yep. That's a range. Is that? His his CV was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Like working at a salt farm. To grow it? No, they, they they dry out seawater. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they grow While tinkering salt. with recipes. <laughs> but it wasn't until he was in his 40s that ramen inspiration struck. Ando provided a mythical origin story for his middle-aged dabbling in food. Well, this is my 10-year plan. Um, <laughs> in his biography, Ando claimed that he was struck by inspiration when he saw people huddled around a ramen stall in post-war Osaka. With food shortages rampant, he believed noodles could cure world hunger. Of course, there are cracks in the corporate origin story. Ando didn't found his noodle company, Nassine, until 1958, well into the post-war period. The product also got its start as a relatively luxurious convenience food, for, since the first chicken ramen sold chicken. in... Chi- chicken. <laughs> it's spelled with a C-H-I-K-I-N Chicken Yeah um, Sold in Japan cost more than fresh noodles did Ando's mm-hmm. background as businessman Wasn't as blameless as the corporate myth implies either In 1948 He went to jail for tax evasion Though he oh. claimed it was for It was for providing scholarships for students 
<laughs> Regardless of how altruistic instant noodles were, the story remains inspiring. They were the and product delicious. of a 48-year-old tinkerer who invented flash frying noodles so they could be quickly cooked in boiling water. It's pretty inspiring. Um, yeah. Ando followed that with the 1971 invention of cup noodles, which were inspired by customers who reused styrofoam coffee cups as ramen bowls. Instant noodles took off and competitors like Maruchan built off the innovation. Also, this is this is just something I found and it was very funny to me. Also, Ando is noted for the quote, mankind is noodle kind. And who knows what that means, but it seems like it should mean something. It and really I wish does. I had known that before my um, very severe cup noodle based injury my senior year of college. Oh, no. Were you betrayed by noodle kind? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, no. Yeah. I was filling it up with the boiling water. Ooh. Oh, and no. though I was holding the cup and pouring the water. And no. Did it, you miss? No, I didn't miss, but the water caught the cup, the lid on the mm. cup, mm-hmm. and pushed it down. And then the water went Bloop. over the cup, past my hand, and I watched the boiling water uh. wash away my epidermis. <laughs> And I called my mom. I was like, I burned myself. And she's like, put some aloe on it. I'm like, ah, there's not skin there. (laughs) She's like, oh, no. (laughs) And did you go to the emergency room? I went to... I went to the campus clinic. And I was like, I burned myself. I like held my hand up. And they're like, okay, let's... Let's just... It's not a problem. They put on calm nurse voice for you. okay. And I'm like, I can't feel anything. They're like, okay, that's good. good. That's great. Good. And then I had to wear a mitt when I went to go meet the graduate schools that had admitted me. Oh, buddy. So I showed up with like a Mickey Mouse. Hi. Yeah, I was just like, hello. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so oh. that's. What a story. That's my, my scrape with noodle kind. Oof. All right. Well, <laughs> we're going to finish up with two more archaeological tidbits that take us back to ancient Japan. It's oh. all a circle. The first concerns a clay vessel that was discovered in 2016 on Hokkaido. This extremely rare discovery provides clues on the cultivation and distribution of chestnuts, food, what? Oh, what? Of chestnuts, food in the Jomon era, and the spirituality of ancient Japanese people. And then it takes a turn, but I promise it'll circle back. Maze weevils. Maze, are- maze weevil is absolutely a 1920s like crime lady. Yeah. I'm Maisie Weevil. <laughs> oh, she's got she's got a younger sister, the lesser of two weevils. <laughs> oh, I hurt myself. <laughs> we didn't script that for the record. We're just very good. Okay, so maize weevils are beetles of the Dryophthoriae. Nope, dry Dryophthoriae. Nope, Dryophthoriae. <laughs> they're beetles. Dryophthoriae. Dryophthoriae. Thank you. Yep. They are destructive pests of stored rice and grains. By two thousand and three, CE. Jomon period pottery and pottery fragments containing foreign body impressions had been collected by various researchers from multiple archaeological sites around Japan. Surveys of these impressions. Sorry, I just started thinking about that joke again. (laughs) 
Surveys of these impressions exposed hundreds of seed and insect traces on and in the pottery. Little beetles in them pots. Over the years, researchers found that maize weevils constituted over 90% of all recorded insect impressions. So like when they got bugs in the pots. They were the greater weevil. They were. And here's the part that gets really interesting. The nature of weevil. (laughs) The nature of weevil. (laughs) So the the article goes on to talk about uh, how important chestnuts were to the inhabitants of Hokkaido. But chestnuts are not native to Hokkaido. And previous studies surmised that people carried them to the northern Japanese island, along with bears, I guess. The discovery of weevils at the at the Tatasaki archaeological site in Hokkaido is evidence that the Jomon people of Tohoku, south of Hokkaido, carried supplies, including chestnuts infested by weevils, over the Tsugaru Strait by ship. And so uh, the leader of the study, Professor Obata of Kumamoto University, said the meaning of a large amount of adult maize weevils in pottery was not touched upon in detail in my paper. However, I believe that the Jomon people mixed the weevils into the pottery clay with the hope of having a good harvest. So it was a deliberate inclusion, he thinks. So like the weevils got there because they were brought over with these chestnuts to Hokkaido and surrounding islands. And then they, the weevils then like affected the stores of chestnuts and probably other grains if they were storing them. And so this guy thinks that the response partially was the inclusion of these little weevils in the clay pots for whatever reason. Are you looking at the link? No, I'm looking up because I was thinking back to my childhood when we'd pick chestnuts and wait for the worms to crawl out. And they were weevil they larvae. Oh, how about that? Huh. Well, look, look at that weevil. Deliver us from weevils. That's like five weevil jokes in the space of 10 minutes. I know. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) What a silly looking bug. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty derpy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And lastly, more from the Jomon people with fewer bugs and more fish. In one of the largest studies of its kind, an international team of researchers conducted organic residue analysis of almost 800 ceramic vessels from 46 Jomon culture archaeological sites, dated to between 13,000 and 6,000 BCE in Japan. It's a silly little Muppet bug. I know. It's got, it's got it? a gonzo nose. I know. It's a gonzo weevil. <laughs> oh, we'll post that on social media. <laughs> With no explanation. Just, here's a bug. <laughs> dated to between 13,000 and 6,000 BCE in Japan to identify their contents. The results, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, demonstrate that pottery had a strong association with the processing of fish and other aquatic resources. Uh, The team, headed by Dr. Alex Lucan from the University... Probably (laughs) Lucan. Lucan? From the University of York, recovered diagnostic lipids from the charred surface deposit of the Jomon pottery with the most with most of the compounds deriving from the processing of freshwater or marine organisms. Yeah. Now that is, they're getting those fish oils. Yeah, they're getting their omega-3s. Yeah. Fish fats. From fat fish. <laughs> fish fats from fat fish. <laughs> the team wrote, quote, 
These vessels were used by Jomon hunter-gatherers to store and process fish, initially salmon, but then a wider range, including shellfish, freshwater and marine fish, and mammals, as fishing intensified. Mammals aren't fish, just to be clear. But I guess you can fish for mammals. Technically, that's hunting. They, they do say there are plenty of fish in the sea. I'm referring to human people, I guess, huh? Yep. Mm. Uh, this association with fish... The oh. Fish Association. <laughs> oh, God. Remains stable even after the onset of climate warming, including in more southerly areas where expanding forests provided new opportunities for hunting game and gathering plants. Land fishing. <laughs> the samples analyzed are some of the, er- end quote, the samples analyzed are some of the earliest found and date from the end of the late Pleistocene, a time when our ancestors were living in glacial conditions, to the post-glacial period when the climate warmed close to its current temperature and when pottery began to be produced in much greater quantity. Dr. Luquin said, quote, Thanks to the exceptional preservation of traces of animal fat, we now know that pottery changed from a rare and special object to an everyday tool for preparing fish and mammals. I think that our study not only reveals the subsistence of the ancient Jomon people of Japan, but also its resilience to a dramatic cl- change in climate. End quote. Mm-hmm. These vessels show that the Jomon people were starting to intensify their use of aquatic resources being able to store things in advance of in advance of challenging seasonal conditions is an indication that the Jomon were starting to move away from strictly hunter-gatherer ways of life and were perhaps starting to stay in one place for longer periods of time. Yeah, so that's that's a neat thing to be able to tell from just some fish fats. Pots are amazing. I know they're amazing. I know how you feel about pots, and I agree. And with that, <laughs> listeners... We bring our banquet to a close. Thank you for listening and for supporting us and writing reviews and leaving stars on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge deal for us. It helps other people find us. We'll be back next week with more dirt for your ears. And you can find us wherever you get your pods. Yep. You can also find us with your eyes on social media, on Facebook. I mean, or however you consume social media. Yeah, that's true. Maybe you have a text reading thing. Which, with whatever sensory unit you like to use. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all that is together on thedirtpod.com, where you can also go to find out how to sponsor an episode of all your very own that you will mm-hmm. just share with thousands of your closest friends when yeah, they but listen. They'll, but they'll know that it was you that they commissioned will know it. it. Was you. Yeah. If you want to send a couple bucks our way each month to support what we do, you can do that over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Or you can just keep listening. We appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. Th- thank you for listening. Um, Clean your earbuds. Yeah. I was just thinking about dirt in your ears and like, yeah, you should with clean your earbuds. on, you're 700% more likely to uh, in- experience an increase in inner ear bacteria. So clean those buds. PSA from the dirt. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> this show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.